Amen. Amen. A little change of pace today. If you would, open up with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 8 this morning, and then verses 9 through 11, Lord willing, next Sunday. Philippians chapter 2. As you're opening up there, I want to say a word. You might have noticed that video earlier where we were riding around Atlanta, uh, that church planter is Jared Boyd. He was the youth pastor here uh, several years ago for about a year and a half, and uh, we love him here at First Baptist Church and thankful for him, and he's helping to plant City View uh, Church in Atlanta and through the North American Mission Board, and so every dollar we give to Lottie, I mean to Annie Armstrong helps go to plant churches in cities like Atlanta, and you heard a little bit about the great needs there are there. Uh, let me mention, though, I don't want to encourage you to stop giving. In fact, I'd like to blow through the goal now, but uh, on Wednesday, we met our Annie Armstrong uh, missions offering goal. And so we have now gotten to $8,000, uh, and presumably at this point, maybe even more. And after today, I'm sure it'll be even greater than that. Who knows how high we might go? How high do you think we can go, Gene? What do you think? Nine. Gene says nine. What about ten? There we go. Ten. All right. So we have two people that have committed to give $1,000 each this morning. And so we praise God for that and look forward to seeing how the Lord uh, uh, uses others, maybe. We might even get to 12 or 15 before it's all over with. So we praise God for that and look forward to seeing how the Lord answers those prayers. Uh, If you have your Bibles, open there to Philippians chapter 2. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the words of our God. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we ask you if you would, please open our minds to hear your word. And God, I pray we would be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes my fear is that Christians believe, or some people think Christians believe perhaps, but sometimes I I hear the way some people talk about their emotions and their struggles and things like that, and they're almost making apologies for things sometimes, and it makes me afraid that some Christians believe that they have to be gospel robots, that that, that we feel like anything we have that the gospel addresses has to be immediately processed. We have to immediately get over it and immediately get after thinking about the way that Jesus has solved every problem. Now, that's not to say that we ought ought not to start thinking about those things as soon as we experience any sort of negativity, but I want you to know that even though sometimes it feels like it, sorrow does not need to be immediately processed. It's okay. It's okay if we live with sorrow for a season. 
Sometimes I think, and some of this is from the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Other, this, other things of this is from an ignorance of especially the Old Testament and really the whole Bible. Uh, some of this is simply because of the way that we live in a culture that downplays uh, the, the, the way that we are sad and things like that. But the reality is that some people feel like they're bad Christians if gospel hope and gospel joy don't immediately spring up in their hearts. And some of you, even as you hear me say this, might feel waves of relief washing over you. You say, I've been in a season of sorrow and a season of struggle, and I've longed for joy and I've longed for hope, and yet it's just not there yet. Well, perhaps it's okay for a season, for a season to lean into those things, to learn from those things. There's all kinds of reasons for this. Another I fear sometimes is that we've gotten too used to this world plagues and tornadoes and sickness and death have become so commonplace to us that we forget that the Lord didn't make the world this way. So often we're so quick to get to the answers that we don't even really ask the questions. We're so quick to say, right, this is just part of life. Or, yeah, but one day Jesus is going to make all things new. Or, 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 right, but you really shouldn't feel that way if you really know Christ because we're all going to go to heaven and be happy one day. Sometimes we forget to ask the questions, is this really the way the world's supposed to be? Is this really the way God made things? The answer is no. It's okay to do the work of sorrow. It's okay to not immediately bounce back. Now listen, if that's who you are and how God made you and you do that, I'm not saying we shouldn't get joy, we shouldn't get hope in the midst of our trials and struggles and sorrows. If you do, praise God. But that's not always the experience. In fact, I would argue it's not even the normative experience, experience in the Christian life. No matter how much people try to make it seem like that's the case. It's not true that we come to know Jesus and then we're happy all the day. Sometimes we struggle. There's a rich tapestry of imagery in the Bible that points us to lament and even sorrow. Today, today, this very Sunday, why don't we embrace sorrow today? Even as we think about this triumphal imagery, I uh, this triumphal entry and the imagery thereof, I, I hope and pray that you can feel the tinge of sorrow even as the hosannas ring that presumably this very same crowd just a mere week later, less than a week later, will be crying out, crucify him. Let's do the work of sorrow this week. It's part of what our Maundy Thursday service is for on Thursday to help us do the work of sorrow and the work of of lament. Let, let's be sorrowful today. Let's, let's get a real clear, fully orbed picture of the sorrow of the Lord and the sorrow of the cross. Let's feel sorrow today in order that the gospel might be even sweeter for us tomorrow. Let, let's feel the sorrow of our sin so that forgiveness for us is all the more joyful. This Sunday and next, we're going to turn to one of Paul's Christ hymns. 
It's part of the letter to the Philippians. And in this letter, in this particular section, Paul is working in order to try to help the Philippians have a humble attitude like the attitude of Christ. His idea here is make my joy complete in this way. And in the middle of this, this exhortation of the Philippians, Paul hits some of the highest highs that can be hit in Christian theology. We see the descent of the Lord to the cross. And we see the ascent of the Lord to the right hand of the Father. Just in this handful of verses in Philippians. This morning, I hope you'll feel and experience the sorrow of sin that took our Lord to the cross. The sorrow of sin that made His humiliation necessary. I want you this morning to see and believe three points, three truths about the death of our Lord that ought to produce sorrow in our hearts, but sorrow that gives way to joy. Three truths this morning. Here's the first. I hope and pray that you'll see the sorrow of a fallen world. See the sorrow of a fallen world. It's Easter, but let's talk about Christmas for just a moment. Here we see a picture of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what we celebrate at Christmas. In case, in case anyone in the room has forgotten, it's been a minute since Christmas, so it's easy to forget. Jesus came into the world by humbling himself. It's a picture of the coming of the Lord, the advent of of our Christ. Now, notice what he says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is making an argument to the Philippians, trying to help them be humble toward one another's, another. And he begins to describe the mind of Christ that he hopes they'll have. And here's what he says. Who though, in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Though he was God, he did not grasp his rights as God. Now, this is a weird thing for us to think about in our world. It's a weird thing for me to think about in my heart. Isn't it strange to think about someone would have rights and not grasp them? Well, we love our rights, and in fact, I think we should as citizens of America. We should be thankful for our rights. But how hard is it for us to say, I'm going to set my rights aside for the sake of others? How hard is it for us in so many ways, not just as citizens, but just in general, to set our rights aside? And you may say, Pastor, I'm noble. I'm noble. I'd set my rights aside to anyone. Call me next time someone jumps ahead of you at a four-way stop, and then we'll talk. We'll see how noble you are about your rights then. Are you really willing to hand your rights over as much as you think you are? Jesus was God, but he did not grasp his rights as God. Now, recognize this idea. Consider this reality. What this text is saying is that the Lord Jesus Christ robed in glory, the second person of the Trinity, eternal in glory and perfections, infinite in righteousness, infinite in power, infinite in wisdom. He stepped into the world in perfect and total humility. Now, think about it for a second. 
Jesus stepped into the world in perfect and total humility. The supremely divine one became supremely humble, and we still rejected him. We still rejected him. We, we still crucified him. My friends, the world needs redemption. Uh, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, but he also came into the world to redeem the world. And we live in a world that's longing for redemption. Just this very week, we've been faced with the realities of what it means to live in a fallen world. Now, I'll be the first to admit, sometimes I'm too uh, passe about the threat of severe weather. Now, I want you to know why. Because no one on planet Earth is more terrified of storms than my mom. And so I've been stuffed up into a closet so many times in my life, I can't keep count. I can remember sitting in my parents' closet, safest place in the house, double bridges, Alabama, just knowing that impending doom's on the way. Mom's checking on us in the closet, walking to the TV in the bedroom, checking the window. She just, uh, there, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt one bit if there were grooves worn into the floor from that path that my mom took. And yet, we don't, we don't recognize, we don't see that it's crazy to be afraid of severe weather because we all know people who have lost homes, who have lost loved ones, who have lost so many things through these storms. We can feel the fallenness around us. Even this morning, as a giant thunderclap and the lightning strikes, we're reminded that we live in a world that's not as it should be. It's a picture of God's displeasure with sin, that the heavens would recoil in the way they do. The world is longing for redemption. There's sickness, death, disease. Creation is not as it should be. And yet Jesus came into the world, and throughout his earthly life, what would he do? He would show and demonstrate the way that he has come to reverse the curse. As he walked in the flesh, even though the Bible says he emptied himself, that doesn't mean that he emptied himself, I don't believe, of his divine powers and prerogatives. He had those, but by the Spirit, as he lived his earthly life, he would execute his divine powers in certain ways in order to demonstrate who he was and to demonstrate what God was doing in the world through his life. And so we live in a world where there's sickness and death, and yet what would Jesus do? He would speak and the lame would walk. He would touch the eyes of the blind and they would see. He would call the dead from their tombs. We, we live in a world where creation seems to be rebelling against the order that God made, where creation is thrown into upheaval through sin. And yet when the wind and the waves threaten to capsize the boat on which our Lord is going, he's asleep, he stands up, he wakes up, he speaks, and the wind and the waves obey. We live in a world that's buffeted by the devil. And yet the Lord speaks and demons flee. I want you to see and to feel the sorrow of a fallen world this morning. And yet I don't want you to lose the hope that the Lord Jesus came into the world to make all things right and all things new. 
You see, the glory of the incarnation and the glory of the humiliation of the Son of God is rooted in the sorrow of the fallen world we live in. Now, you may be like me. When I hear of a mess or something like that, bad traffic, or if I hear of a situation in another church where I hear of some brother pastor who's going through a tough situation, you know what my first thought is? I want to stay as far away from that as I can. Things start getting bad. I want to get out of there. I don't want to go into the traffic. I don't want to get into the bad situation. I want to stay uh, out of messes. I hear some conflict happening. The last thing I want to do is get involved in it. And yet, here we have a world that's a mess. And what did Jesus do? A world that's in sorrow. A, a world that's weary. A world that's convulsing with the effects of sin. A, a world where demons prowl. What does the Lord Jesus do? He comes right in the middle of it. And when he speaks, the world obeys. Consider this reality. The glory of the incarnation and the humiliation of the Son is rooted in the sorrow of the fallen world we live in. It makes us ask this question. It raises this question in our hearts. He would come here? He would come here? Second of all, I want you to feel the sorrow of your sin. I, I want you to feel the sorrow of your sin. Uh, let me ask you this question. When was the last time you, you really mourned over your own sin? When was the last time your sin drove you to your knees in prayer? I, I see all the time churches, and I don't think this is wrong or bad or anything like that, but churches will sometimes want to get together and get on their knees and pray for America. Our churches want to get together and get on their knees and pray for this person or pray for that person. When was the last time you got down on your knees and prayed and asked God for forgiveness for your sins? You had sorrow for your sins. Not the sins in Washington, D.C. or Hollywood or New York City or wherever else it is that the news is telling us there's bad sin this week. No, well, I'm talking about the sins in your own heart. When was the last time you felt sorrow for your sin? Won't this text help you see it in verse 7? But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. That is, the Lord of glory became flesh on our behalf. He became man for you. You might go to the grocery store this afternoon. Or you might turn on the TV and you'll see magazines and special editions of magazines. And you'll see special TV shows and everything else. Because around this time of year, people start wanting to ask the question, Who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? There are two big culprits, right? Was it the Jews or was it the Romans? Who was really responsible for the death of the Lord? And sometimes I wonder if this little game we play every year at Easter where we start talking about the death of Jesus as if it's sort of a mere matter of historical interest or when we're trying to figure out, okay, who's really responsible for killing this seemingly good man, the world might say. I wonder if this little game we play is actually for the sake of our own consciences. Because if we read the Bible astutely, if we observe the Bible as we ought to observe the Bible, wouldn't it be clear to us that our sin put Jesus on the cross? There's no question that divine love compelled him to go to the cross. His countrymen conspired against him to send him to the cross. The Romans exacted the deed by crucifying him on the cross. The, the Father's wrath was poured out on him 
on the cross, and yet was it not our sin, the, the, the sin we committed, the sins we did, the foul wickedness of our own hearts that presented the need for the Lord Jesus to go to, cro- go to the cross in the first place. He was found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's something else we know when we see this truth about Jesus, though. He knows our temptations. As you find yourself sorrowful for your own sin, I I want you to know something. Some of you may be in this room right now saying, Jesus doesn't understand what it's like to be tempted the way I'm tempted. He, he, He doesn't understand exactly what I'm going through, but I want you to know the Bible teaches us And when Jesus humbled himself in this way and became a man, he did not exempt himself from experiencing temptations in the same way we experience temptations, yet it was not with sin. He knows the temptations you experience. In fact, as one book I read recently made clear, he knows them better than you do because he resisted them longer than you did. (laughs) Thought about that? You eventually gave in. It's like the difference between doing one rep of, a, of an exercise or doing a million reps of an exercise. You do it once and say, yeah, I can lift that amount of weight, but can you do it a hundred more times? The, the, the Lord Jesus resisted temptation to the point of shedding blood. And so often we think about the blood of the cross, but, but he resisted temptation to the point of sweating great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Lord Jesus resisted temptation. And so you can take heart, those of you who are sorrowful over sin, those of you whose sins are bringing tears to your eyes, you might be sitting there thinking, I thought this guy was about grace. I thought this Bible was about God's love. I thought he were, I was here to hear about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, my friends, this grace is so great. This love that will not let you go is so great because the reality is that you ought to be, you must be, crushed by your own sin you must feel the weight of your sin and yet you can take heart in knowing that our great high priest the lord jesus christ is our advocate he knows our temptations and yet he was without sin and he was obedient in your stead that is the grace of god that is the love that will not let us go There's something about knowing someone who has been through what you've been through. (laughs) I've been in a lot of hospitals, a lot of bedsides, a lot of waiting rooms, praying with folks, waiting to go back for surgery. Sometimes you'll have somebody over here, a well-meaning friend or family member there, and they'll say, now what kind of surgery are you having done again? And I'll say, yeah, I'm having this done. Oh, man, I know someone who had that. Ruined him. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, now let us pray. (laughs) You guys ever had that? You're getting ready to have something done, and man, people love to tell you their horror stories. I had that done, would never have it done again, I'll tell you that. We've had those experiences. There's bad stories that make you feel worse, but... There's something about knowing someone who's been through what you've been through. There's something about knowing someone who's been through what you've been through and they're fine now. Isn't it amazing that Christ experienced temptation and he emerged victorious? 
Those of you who are struggling over sin, who are sorrowful over sin. In fact, those of you who are sorrowful over death and sickness and just the full weight of the fall in the world. Isn't it something to know that the Lord Jesus walked through the very valley of the shadow of death and he feared no evil when he was there and he emerged victorious on the other side? Isn't there something glorious in knowing that the Lord Jesus has been there and he's done that and he gives that righteousness to you by faith? So there's something glorious about knowing that the Lord Jesus was born in the likeness of men for us. There's such a glory in what Christ has done for us. It's, it's rooted in the depths. Part of that glory is rooted in the depths of our wicked hearts, of our limitations, of our finiteness. He, we have to ask, he would become like us. He would come here and he would become like us. But the descent of the Lord is not over yet. Verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Behold, finally, the sorrow of the death of the Son. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The prophet Isaiah saw this. He foretold this day. In the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, he says, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, even a humiliating and torturous death. He became sin who knew no sin. There at that cross, he was the scapegoat and the paschal lamb for our sins. All the sins of the world were born, I believe, in his body on the tree in order that we might receive life through him. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What happened at the cross was the deepest, most dark and horrible moment of wickedness in human history. There's been nothing worse that's ever been committed or ever will be committed than deicide, the, 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 the action of, of bringing the Son of God up on false and trumped up charges. The one innocent one, the one perfect one. We looked at him when he was there on the cross and as people walked by, they assumed he was accursed by God when in reality it was their curse. It was their sins that put him there on that cross. It was for them that he died. It was for them that he was 
tortured. It was for him that he suffered. It was their sorrows that he was bearing. He was infinitely glorious for all eternity. He was infinitely joyful for all eternity. And yet he came here to this place in our, in our flesh in order that he might save us. Nothing's worse than the perfect, innocent Son of God as the Bible says, becoming sin, being murdered by wicked sinners. And yet this Friday, we will celebrate Good Friday. Thursday night, we'll remember the Lord in the garden. And on Friday, we'll commemorate the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of all things and of all titles, somehow we have managed to call it good. Good Friday. And to some who see that and hear that might think that's the strangest thing they've ever heard. And that is precisely the point. What is sorrowful and awful, the most deep and despicable sin in all human history, and there have been some doozies, the worst day in the history of the world was also, by God's grace, the best day in the history of the world. Because that day which was so dark and awful has become good for us because we so desperately need a Savior. The blood of the Lord that was shed for us in the great press has become the wine of joy that we drink in His church. We see what Jesus has done for us and here this morning, as we feel the weight and sorrow of the fall and of sin and of the death of Christ, we feel it and we own it and we go deep into it, we lean into it in order that the joy of the kingdom and forgiveness and the resurrection might be all the more bright and real for us in our hearts and our souls. Let this thought be on your hearts this week as you think through, as you pray through, as you consider the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you try to ascertain the glory of the Lord's death, as you start to get a feel for what it means in the sorrow of your sin for the Lord Jesus to come precisely to that place, as you begin to feel the darkness of your sin and realize what it means for the Lord Jesus to come precisely to that place, I want you to fall down in worship as this amazing and glorious thought begins to ruminate in your brains as you feel it. I want you to feel it with as much truth and clarity as you've ever felt in your life. He would die for me. I want to offer an invitation this morning. Perhaps you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus. As soon as we're done with this prayer in just a moment, I want you to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. Turn from your sins in repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus. And I believe with all my heart you will be saved. All those who come to Him, He will in no wise cast out. Second of all, you may be a believer and you may say, Pastor, I need some time to pray. You take these moments right now. You, you take these moments right now to trust in the Lord more, even as a believer. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. You take this time to pray, and if you want to know what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church, after this service is over, I'd love to talk to you. 
And in any category, while we're still waiting to come back to the altar, if you need to talk to me, I'd love to talk with you and counsel with you as soon as this service is over. But you don't need me. You don't need this space.